Hi, this is Eugene with just a few words before today's episode. If you are a Korean American or hang out with Korean Americans, you probably know somebody involved with Liberty in North Korea, or LINK. As I mentioned in our pilot, I was never really involved in Korea-related organizations in high school or college, but while I was in Korea teaching English, I briefly volunteered for the North Korean Defectors Program, tutoring English to elementary school-age kids uh, once or twice a week. And on one of the first days, one of the young girls asked me if I'd ever been to Australia. And, you know, this is in the middle of tutoring, and it felt really random, so I said, no, like, why would you, like, why? And she said that she had lived in China before moving to Australia, and then ultimately to South Korea. So to think that such a young girl had already been through so much in her life was eye-opening to me, and through the time that I spent with them, I realized the cliche that people everywhere are full, complex, whole people. Just because these kids came from North Korea didn't mean that they, you know, don't laugh or don't have curiosities or seek understanding about the world. So in this episode, you'll be able to learn a lot more about what Link does and listen to a few stories that will humanize what many of us see as an almost allegorical, distant, and uh, dystopian country. So I've talked enough. Here's Paul and Hannah Song. Liberty in North Korea, an organization that means uh, so much to me and that works uh, directly with and for the people of North Korea. Hannah, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So I thought it would be especially relevant to hear from you directly about the work that Link does and also its relevance to this issue of uh, family separation. So could you please start off by giving us an overview of, of Link and the work that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So Liberty in North Korea, we're an international NGO. And as you mentioned, we work directly with the North Korean people. And, you know, our ultimate vision is to see the North Korean people achieve their liberty. And so part of our work entails helping North Korean refugees who have managed to escape out of North Korea. We help them essentially through the rest of that escape journey. You know, it's about 3,000 miles of secret rescue routes from China all the way to Southeast Asia. Uh, And so we help North Korean refugees through that sort of a modern day underground railroad. And then we really work with them after they resettle and begin new lives, trying to empower them to be change makers, advocates and leaders on this issue. To date, we've been able to help almost 1300 North Korean refugees and their children in their escape to reach freedom. And we have also been able to help more than 470 individuals actually reunite with their families or family members upon reaching South Korea or the United States. Yeah, and I'm a huge fan of Link. Um, As I was telling Hannah right before this, I was involved uh, for all four years of college, and I'm even wearing a Link uh, shirt right now. So I'm rocking. (laughs) Um, But I, you know, one of the reasons I really, really wanted to um, have this conversation with you was because when most people think about Korea or even North Korea and divided families, I feel like they think about elderly grandmas and grandpas who who were separated during the Korean War or the division of the Korean Peninsula. But I was wondering, could you talk a little bit more about how family separation relates to uh, North Korean refugees and their process of resettlement? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, so the first wave of North Koreans, most significant wave of North Koreans really started to be in the late 90s, early 2000s. And that, a big part of that was as a result of the famine that happened in North Korea, you know, in the mid to late 90s. And so that was the first time we really started to see this sort of influx of North Koreans escaping out of the country and going into the northern part into China. And so, you know, many of them were going into China looking for food and medicine. Some of them were even looking for family members who had already gone there. They were looking for jobs, money, things like that. And what you begin to see then inevitably was North Koreans who then have an opportunity to actually leave China and to go on to South Korea, for example. And a big part of that being because the Chinese government refused to recognize North Koreans as refugees and instead in cooperation with the North Korean government, you know, they actually would would hunt down and would look for these North Korean refugees with the intent to actually forcibly send them back to North Korea, where, as we all know, they could face severe punishment for having left in the first place without the state's permission. So for a lot of North Koreans who made that initial decision to leave North Korea to go to China, especially during that time, you saw issues relating to family members who potentially were leaving temporarily with the intention of coming back. And so many of them would go on their own and then, again, would eventually have an opportunity potentially to leave even China. And so a lot of the individuals during that time wasn't as common that you would see whole families really moving together. It was mostly just individuals who were sort of making those moves on their own. And so a big part of that also being, you know, over the years also, as the Underground Railroad was sort of more developed, many North Koreans also just didn't necessarily know what the risks were going to include. And so you would oftentimes have, you know, individuals or even parents who would go first in the hopes of trying to see what that journey would be like with the intent of trying to bring their children out later or families who would potentially intentionally separate or stagger their escapes because they didn't want to run the risk of potentially being all caught together. And so for individuals to move separated from their families or to leave family members behind is incredibly prevalent. It's very common. Uh, I would say that most North Korean refugees today who have made it to South Korea or the U.S. Um, have come and have been separated from family members. Every once in a while, we'll get a whole family who has managed to come together, an immediate family. But of course, they've you know often left behind grandparents or other relatives and things like that. So uh, the other challenge that we also saw was as a part of this flood of North Koreans going into China, another issue that came up was the issue of trafficking, actually. There were a lot of women who found themselves in China in incredibly vulnerable positions where they were either tricked by brokers uh, or were put in situations sometimes even by their own family members. We know of stories where some family members would sell or make arrangements for their own daughters uh, or their own siblings or family members to sell them in China, uh, sometimes, you know, with the notion that it would just simply be a better life or a better situation than if they were to stay in North Korea. And other times, of course, just simply because there is such a huge demand on the Chinese side. And that was one of the biggest pull factors that really we saw in terms of bringing through a lot of female 
North Korean refugees. And so at the peak of really where you had the most North Koreans kind of going into China, what we suspect was the highest number of refugees hiding in China. I mean, the numbers at that time were anywhere from something like 70 to 80 percent of female North Korean refugees. It was, you know, kind of estimated were being trafficked. They were being sold to men in China. They were being put into forced marriages, forced to work in these brothels or online sex chat rooms. And so it was a really really precarious situation. And did any of those, uh, the women who were trafficked in China, did they have, you know, families or spouses um, back in North Korea? Or, or are these all, you know, younger, single women? Oh, yeah. I mean, it really ran the gamut. I mean, we, we've seen, we've met women who were, you know, much younger, you know, sometimes in their mid, early teens that were being trafficked, all the way up to older women women in their 40s, 50s that were being trafficked as well. Um, They had already had families in North Korea, had children. You know, another interesting and really sad thing was also mothers and daughters who had escaped into China together and then oftentimes would be trafficked separately and then would lose touch. Yeah, I think from what you, uh, this overview that you've just given us, I think there are two things that really stuck out to me. One is that, well, you mentioned a lot of these families think that, um, or, you know, parents or parts of families, they think that they're going to come back and and see their children again or their loved ones again pretty soon afterwards. And then the they end up becoming separated unexpectedly. And that really struck me in that video that you sent uh, and that I told you I was watching last night and, and bawling my eyes over. Um, I think it was made this past holiday season of, um, I remember, I think um, his name was uh, Kumyok maybe, but he was saying when he was separated, um, you, know, you know, he didn't even have time to bring a photo of his, uh, of his mother or his family. So when the uh, everyone should watch the video, especially if you're stuck at home and uh, make sure you have tissues on hand. But um, they have no idea that when they make this journey, that they're they don't have time to you know have the physical or or emotional preparation for this kind of long term separation. Yeah, you know what's interesting is for his case, he was abroad and his decision to leave happened very suddenly. But for a lot of North Korean refugees that leave knowing they have the intent to actually defect and know that they're not going to be coming back, even then still, many will choose not to take photos or anything like that because of the potential risk they could put their family members in if they were to be caught. Uh, And if they were caught and they were caught with those photos or with anything like that, that would point directly back to their family members. You know, they just don't want to put family members in that position. And so one of the other really sad things that we hear so often is just simply so many individuals will leave and just never say goodbye. They make the difficult decision that leaving and not telling their family members where they're going is safer for them in case their family members do end up being questioned or interrogated. Uh, And sometimes they will be put under surveillance once it's realized that individuals are missing or are gone. And so it's sort of a a bit of plausible deniability. They don't want to put their family members at a greater risk. And so they choose not to say goodbye um, and not to tell their family members where they're going. And that is something that's so incredibly difficult for so many of them, especially when they do make it safely and reach freedom and they think back often about their family members yeah it must be such a traumatic experience i can't even uh start to imagine uh this makes me think of a parallel which is with 
the issue that I'm most familiar with, which is, uh, you know, family separated from the Korean War, is uh, because it's such a traumatic experience, a lot of these separated family members, these grandmas and grandpas, uh, they you know, there's a lot of shame and reluctance and just uh, denial even um, to not wanting to talk about uh, their family members, uh, which sounds really incredible, even if they want to, uh, they want to, you know, block it away and kind of move on with that part of their life. And that's also something you see when trying, uh, that adds to the difficulty of trying to, I guess, calculate or quantify uh, the number of families who have been separated from from the Korean War, just because you know not everyone is willing to come out and say so. Do you think is is this a similar case with you know North Korean refugees in recent years? Yeah, you know that's a really interesting point because it makes me actually think of my own personal story. My grandmother actually was from North Korea as well, and we never knew. In fact, my my mother and her siblings never even knew until probably about seven years ago that my grandmother had had a whole other family in North Korea and had had children there and everything. Uh, She had never talked about it. And, you know, my mom had never known about that. And so it was a bit of a surprise for them. And especially the fact that, you know, my grandmother ended up, you know, living to about 102 and and for the majority of her life had never talked about this whole other part of her life. Uh, And so, you know, for a lot of North Koreans, um, it is very painful for them to talk about their family. I do think it's a little bit different, though, because for so many of them, there is still a possibility that they have hope that they can either help their family members to escape and to be reunited with them. Um, there are ways in which today they can sometimes even reestablish contact with them, you know, through these kind of underground broker networks and smuggled Chinese cell phones um, that they could try to broker arrangements to communicate with family members. And, and, and for others who are just incredibly optimistic, you know, hoping that someday North Korea will be open and that they will be able to go back or to see their families again and to be together. Um, mm-hmm. And then for others who have maybe left years, maybe decades ago, even already, um, and then have made it to South Korea and have actually begun new families and new lives, for some of them, they don't talk about it. Uh, And so actually, there can be cases and times that we've seen when they may have somebody come out later on and reunite with them, but it can actually be a little bit uncomfortable or awkward, because these individuals have actually moved on and have begun new families and new lives. Yeah, that's uh, that makes things a little more complex. And I think, yeah, in, in so many different situations, it's almost like it seems very, even when we were starting this podcast, it seemed very black and white that family reunion is always good. And it's uh, kind of like this blanket statement, but it's, uh, you know, it, it really depends on what kind of family reunion and under what circumstances. But I, I'm, I'm really curious to know more about what you said earlier about how some North Korean refugees are able to reestablish or make some contact with their family members back in North Korea. Because, you know, from that, that going back to that video, um, I, I was under the impression that most, if not all, North Korean refugees, they're not able to call or message, you know, through Kakao Talk with their families in North Korea, especially given uh, the risk involved, as you, as you mentioned before. So could you talk a little bit more about that and if uh, Link has a role to play in that? Yeah, absolutely. 
So what's been really interesting is over the last 15 to 20 years, there's actually been quite a lot of change inside North Korea at a grassroots level. Again, a lot of this was spurred as a result of the famine in the late 90s and this sort of grassroots marketization that happened in North Korea, where people realized that they could no longer really rely on the governments and instead these sort of what they called grasshopper markets or these black markets, um, they began to proliferate and people came to rely more sort of on themselves in more of this sort of, you could say it was very camouflage capitalism, right? People trading and bartering and engaging in these types of market activities, which in a place like North Korea technically shouldn't really exist, but it was a way that people found a way to start to survive. And so the interesting thing that came out of that then was you not only begin to have this increasingly more robust market system where people can rely on it for goods and and food and things that they need, but also for information. Also, because then you have a lot more Chinese traders who go back and forth in and out of the country to bring forth goods and and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, then, because of the easy access that so many of these Chinese citizens have to do business in North Korea, you begin to also see more of these sort of brokers playing this middleman role where they can help to facilitate in bringing information or money and things like that. And so over the last, I would say, decade or so, what you begin to see then are these increasingly growing networks of sort of brokers, where whether it's Chinese or Chosonjok, which are ethnically Korean Chinese, helping to facilitate and smuggle in Chinese cell phones into the border area. And with illegal cell phones that are coming in, you know, again, it's incredibly dangerous to be caught with these phones and to be making these kinds of phone calls. And the North Korean government is certainly doing as much as they can to clamp down on this, including surveillance, including punishment and things like that. However, that being said, it is known that there are probably thousands of phone calls that are being made every year from the defector community in South Korea back into North Korea to especially certain key regions. And so one thing to note is, you know, when you if you ever have a chance to go to the border there, there is uh, an area where you'll see, for example, a Chinese cell phone tower literally right on the border, you know, and the only thing separating that from North Korea is a is a is a river. Seeing that, you know, of course, that cell phone tower is there to serve the Chinese public that are living there right in that border area. But inevitably, those phone signals also carry into North Korea a little bit as well. And so that's how you're able to smuggle in these Chinese cell phones and people are able to use them if you're close enough to the border to get that Chinese signal. Uh, And of course, North Koreans, so incredibly just creative, very innovative. And so what you'll see then is if, let's say, there's an individual who's trying to, um, you're trying to connect with someone that's much more inland, they can't make their way to the border to take a call, for example. What you'll see then is with North Korea having a domestic cell phone network, right? They have their own internal cell phone network and you can't make international calls, for example. Mm -hmm. But with those cell phones, what you see happening then is somebody on the border that has both a Chinese cell phone and a domestic cell phone can kind of do that little flipperoo, if you can imagine in your head where you're putting head to mouthpiece, mouth to headpiece, where they can try to connect two different calls, if you know Mm -hmm. what I mean from international to somebody that's on the other line calling from a domestic number. So, you know, we've heard all types of stories like this, incredibly creative ways in which North Koreans are trying to find opportunities to reconnect with family members. 
All that to say, though, that, again, it's still incredibly dangerous, um, very risky, but it is being done. And not only phone calls, but money is also being sent back into the country. And so the defector community is uh, they're sending money back to their family members as well. And it's these same sort of broker networks that are helping to facilitate that and are getting this money back to their families. And so these phone calls and this money is actually really important for two reasons. One, because when we think about North Korean refugees, oftentimes we think about them within the framework or the context of individuals who have escaped, they've sought freedom, and they're now living these new lives. And the story kind of ends there with them just as refugees. But the reality is, is that North Korean refugees today are actually playing one of the most important roles, you know, that we believe should be played today. Uh, And that's as sort of this agent of change. And, And frankly, it's a role only they can play, right? You and I, we don't have anyone in North Korea we can call or send money to. They do. And the second reason is because this money, this information, this is really important for people inside North Korea. The average amount a North Korean, you know, refugee might send to their family member a year might be, you know, about a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars. A thousand to two thousand dollars a year is the average a US mm-hmm. dollars. Now Keep in mind that the average annual income in North Korea is about fourteen hundred dollars. So to get that much money in one go is pretty significant in supporting their family members. It also really is incredibly symbolic, right, for family members who may not know about the outside world, but they're getting this huge sum of money from their son, let's say, who only escaped six months ago. You know, what is this telling them then about the outside world? What is this telling them about South Korea, about, you know, their the ability for their their son to have gone on in such a short period of time to have earned this kind of money and to be able to send that back? And then these phone calls and the information that's being shared, it's a new way in which information is, is coming into the country. Whereas before, we all know North Korea was known as this incredibly isolated and closed hermit kingdom, right? Yeah. Wow. So this made me think, um, well, one, I I would like to plug if you want to learn more about uh, these black markets and this generation and the changes that have been happening in North Korean society, I highly recommend a a link documentary, The Changmadang Generation, which I've seen three times. (laughs) I'm sure, Hannah, you've seen so many more times, but I think it's really, really well done. But but also I was um, I was tuning into a virtual event. Um, hosted by Link last night, actually, on the coronavirus in North Korea, which um, I think this conversation is especially pertinent today. And I was just really struck by, you know, the fact that, well, one, North Korea isn't reporting any cases of the coronavirus, which I find hard to believe. But two, it, it made me wonder... Are North Korean refugees um, who are outside North Korea, for example, in South Korea, uh, and have some kind of contact with their families... Or, you know, NGOs who send in USBs or, or pamphlets, are they, are they doing anything to, you know, to raise awareness about what's actually going on, not just in North Korea, but, you know, everywhere else around the world, right? This is now a, this global crisis, this, this pandemic. So I, I was just burning to ask that question, but it ran out of time yesterday. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. And to be honest, I haven't heard of any of that. I mean, as far as the impact of what's been going on, um, with with coronavirus and its impact in around North Korea, it's certainly impacted our work. You know, we with the complete lockdowns and travel bans, especially in China, it's been 
incredibly difficult. You cannot move through China. And so that's meant that it's put a halt on our rescue work. And in the same goes with their borders, right? You know, China and North Korea, they were very quick. We were very quick to see them shut down those borders, wanting to try to prevent the spread of, of COVID. And so even you know, let's say, for example, traders, North Korean traders or Chinese traders who are going back and forth, we saw really pretty much a halting of cross-border activity happening over the last few months um, because of everything going on. And so the ability for information and like you had mentioned, USBs or things like that going across, I imagine most of that has also completely come to a halt because, you know, we haven't really seen any real movement across the border in terms of people and goods. Hmm. That I see. I, I also am now thinking for those who aren't as familiar with, uh, you know, the situation in North Korea and why a um, someone in North Korea might decide to escape or, or defect. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about is is it possible at all? And this might sound like a silly question for uh, a North Korean refugee in South Korea to try to go to North Korea, to try to go back to North Korea and find their family members or try to meet in a third location like, you know, like China or Southeast Asia. Is that, uh, is that possible by any means? Uh, certainly not for them to go back to North Korea. I mean, that would just be very difficult and so incredibly dangerous and risky. Of course, if their family members were to be able to escape and, and come out to China, yeah, you know, people could certainly meet in a third location like in China if they wanted to. But again, because of the ability to utilize brokers and cell phones in a, a normal context, not in the coronavirus context, you know, people are, you know, if they're trying to facilitate the escape of their family members, typically it's being done through through brokers and phone calls versus going through the risk of asking family members to come out of China. And a big part of that being, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, to come out of North Korea, especially during the peak of the famine, it was very different, right? I mean, people were all very desperate. The borders were much more porous than you could get by bribing soldiers on the border with the promise of like a, a carton of cigarettes or some food that they would bring back and things like that. Or it was a, a few hundred dollars, you could say, you know, and then eventually the price was going up and it would become a few thousand dollars to just just to facilitate crossing the border. Right. You're not even talking about if you're more inland, that's an additional cost to get to the border. But today, if you want to leave North Korea, especially under Kim Jong-un. So since Kim Jong-un has come in, you know, we saw a drop in the number of North Korean refugees making it to South Korea. That dropped almost 50%. Mm. And a big part of that points to, you know, the fact that Kim Jong-un made it such a big part of his strategic priority to crack down on defections. Yeah. And so, you know, he did that in so many ways, including, you know, increased cooperation with the Chinese government, uh, and the Chinese government really relying on locals there to turn in North Koreans, putting up more surveillance, security cameras, fences on the North Korean side, swapping out the the typical border guards, you know, and and incentivizing um, turning in people who are trying to escape. And so it's just become so much more difficult in the Kim Jong Un era, and as a result of that, so much more expensive. And so today, if you want to get across the border. You're talking about that running you, oh gosh, 
the lowest maybe being five, $7,000 per person all the way upwards to like maybe $15,000. And that's mm. just for one person. And that's just to cross the river. Again, that doesn't include uh. if you're coming from somewhere, somewhere more inland. So I would say that it's unlikely that people are trying to facilitate just meeting in third locations because it would be yeah. so costly unless it was with the intent to defect. I see. I see. That is a really concise and helpful overview of the situation on a, um, I think, for everyone. Um, but something that, you know, we're really trying to focus on through this podcast project is to bring out uh, the human stories of, of family separation. And, you know, the mission of the podcast is to serve as a platform for connecting different stories um, of family separation. So I was wondering if you had um, some examples of individuals, especially considering that so much of the work that Link, do, uh, Link does and that you do, you work directly with the North Korean people. So would you be willing to share a, um, a particular story of a North Korean refugee who has experienced uh, family separation? And and hopefully, if, if there's any uh, hope you can offer uh, through that story, that would be even better. Yeah, I mean, gosh, there's so many, you know, because so many people have been separated. But two stories I can share. One of our earliest rescue missions, we helped this couple. We call them Grams and Gramps. They were just the cutest couple in their mid-70s when we helped them to escape. And, you know, it's a difficult journey, like incredibly difficult. Um, yeah. You're talking 3,000 miles, which is further than the distance between New York and L.A. And wow you know, individuals, they're going on various forms of transportation. At time, they're they're walking through the jungle in the middle of the night. It's a really difficult and risky journey. And so a lot of times they will, people will bring like one backpack. We always tell people you have to pack light. It's a long journey. And, you know, you always see people sort of abandoning things out of their bags throughout the journey because it's so heavy. And, yeah. Um, Grams and Gramps were no different throughout their journey. They kept throwing things away out of their backpack. And, and by the time they made it to Southeast Asia um, and they were with our team, you know, we heard from our team members that, you know, Grams and Gramps were essentially sharing one pair of eyeglasses by the time they got there. I don't know what happened to the other pair, but... <laughs> It was really a case where they said also they were holding hands the whole time. Uh, and you can just kind of imagine this incredible couple making this dangerous journey together, holding hands throughout uh, and really supporting them. And, and, you know, when they came through our staff, you know, when we were debriefing with them and talking to them, we said, you know, this is such a difficult journey and, and such a big risk. Why did you decide at this point? To, to take such a huge risk. And Gramps had told us that he said, you know, it's because I promised my wife that no matter what, we would live our last few years in freedom. Mm -hmm. And so it was so uh, amazing, just their, just their resilience. And when they finally made it to South Korea, uh, and they went to Hanawon, the government, uh, the government facility there, they called their daughter. So their daughter had actually defected years before and had gone on to South Korea. Oh, that's great. They called their daughter from Hanawon and she didn't believe it was them. She, it took so long for her to believe that her parents had made it because it was just so, um, it was something she couldn't even imagine. Her 75 year old parents making that same dangerous journey she had made. And so she was shocked that they had made it all the way through. And so, you know, when Grams and Gramps finally made it out of Hanawon, 
they were finally able to see their daughter again and meet her family. And so, you know, Grams and Grams always has a really special place in, in my heart. And I know in the heart of a lot of my staff, they're just so amazing. Wow. That is a, so, such a special story. Oh my goodness. Should make a movie out of that. <laughs> They're super cute. We have a photo of them. I think we featured them on like Valentine's Day last year or the year before. Just so, so, so adorable. Um, Another story that I could share is, you know, another woman, I'll call her CK. Her and her daughter actually had crossed into China, but they were sold to different families. And the families had actually kept in touch, so they must have known each other. And so CK was able to stay relatively connected to her daughter during that time. But then suddenly the family, the other family stopped calling and they lost touch. And so she was frantic to try to find ways how to get back in touch with the family to be able to locate her daughter, but, you know, was never able to do that. She finally had an opportunity to actually escape from China and was really, you know, tormented by this because she had not been able to find her daughter. And Mm -hmm. so she finally decided to take this opportunity to leave China, hoping that she would be in a better position to help find her daughter. And so she ended up spending time with us and, and she came through our network and ended up spending time in one of our shelters. And, you know, we just remember how heartbroken she was during that time because she had, you know, essentially lost her first daughter in China. And her youngest daughter was actually still in North Korea. uh, And she would talk about them a lot. So she eventually resettled and, you know, was constantly trying to find ways to locate her daughter in China. And suddenly, a few years after she resettled, just in the middle of the night, out of the blue, she got a phone call from someone who said it was her daughter. And, you know, she was very skeptical because she didn't recognize her voice. But Mm -hmm. of course, after speaking for a little bit and asking some intimate questions, she confirmed that it was in fact her daughter. And so she put us in touch with her daughter who was still in China at that time. We were able to actually help her daughter escape and she eventually made it to South Korea. And, uh, you know, her daughter had some medical issues because of some chronic illnesses, but actually CK was able to donate a part of her liver to her daughter when she got to South Korea. Wow. And, uh, and yeah, so today her daughter is in much better health and is now studying. Uh, and, you know, they've been reunited. Wow. That, those are very happy endings. So thank you for those two stories of hope. Because I, I guess you weren't kidding when you said in that video um, that, that you shared with me, uh, it says at the end, you know, you too can help North Korean refugees reunite with their loved ones. And I had taken that more figuratively, uh, right? Because in that video, it's, if, if you watch it, it's um, this amazing artist who paints um, out of, you know, with the help from the North Korean refugees themselves and her imagination, uh, their family members in North Korea. And I, I thought that was how, you know, Link is trying to facilitate family reunions. But Wow, that's that's really really great to hear about both CK and um, Graham and Grams and Gramps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think at the end of the day, one of the most heart wrenching things about this issue is when you know we meet our North Korean friends, and I spend time with them because they are just some of the most incredible incredibly resilient and amazing people I've ever met in my life. And I think it's so heartbreaking, though, when, you know, you hear them talk about and long for their families. And it's, 
something I don't think I will ever be able to understand. I think it's something that's difficult for all of us to grasp um, in, in some ways, because for a lot of them, they, they don't reestablish contact. They're not able to, or their families are too far inland. And I think the pain of, for example, one of, one of my friends you know, telling me when her father passed away, she was so heartbroken. She literally could not go uh, and to be there um, and to even ever visit his grave. And she doesn't know if or when she'll ever be able to do that. And, you know, for so many other young North Koreans, especially the pain of holidays um, or times like that, or when they first arrive and, and experiencing this incredible freedom or these new lives uh, and always in the back of their mind is the thought of their parents or their families who are not there with them, who do not get to experience that with them. Um, and really the anxiety or the loneliness that comes with the worry uh, of them or of even just for themselves. Um, and so I think the issue is so real. It can be so heartbreaking, but that we should have hope because yeah. there are things we can do. And there are immediate things that we can do that can actually help to bring families together. And I think just by sharing these stories is so important because like you said before, we don't often think about North Korean refugees when we think about family separation, we think more about people like our grandparents. But then other than that, you know, we do have an ability uh, sometimes to be able to help to reunite North Korean refugees with their families uh, and to help them in their efforts to bring them out and to also help bring them to freedom to join them as well. Yeah, speaking of what we can do, um, you know, on a concrete level to help support and reunite these uh, these families, uh, the last question I had was, do you have any takeaways for, for people who are listening to this episode, this, this podcast, and what they can do to help? Some, you know, very concrete things they can do through Link? Yeah, I mean, of course, we welcome any and all support. We have... So many stories of, you know, these amazing and brave individuals that we've been able to help bring out. And you can find a lot of those stories on our website, on our blog or through our social media. And also, especially on our YouTube, a lot of those those stories are there, including the video that you've mentioned. So, you know, one very easy thing is simply just share those stories, um, watch them, read them, share those stories. Um, the second thing is then if you are so compelled to. You can also either raise the funds, donate, get together a, a team of friends to put together some sort of crazy, wacky, fun fundraiser, you know, to help raise the funds to rescue one person. Uh, it costs $3,000 to help one person reach freedom. Uh, and that's us helping them from China. And you can find all that information on our website. Um, mm -hmm. And not just us. There's so many amazing organizations that are doing this important work both sharing the stories of North Koreans and also doing the work on the ground, helping people to escape and helping to bring families together. And so would definitely encourage people to spend some time looking up any of these other organizations and supporting them as well. Yeah. And last time I checked, I don't know if anybody is uh, still in school, but um, is it still possible to get involved with uh, link chapters at schools or on a local level? Oh, yeah, absolutely. If your school doesn't already have a chapter, you can certainly start one. And so all that information is also on our website. You can um, check out what chapters already exist, or you can reach out to us and we can help connect you to 
any groups that exist already in your community. It's definitely the best decision I made in college. And that's, uh, that's saying something. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Hannah, for the work, you know, that you do. Um, and, you know, being there uh, for the people of North Korea every step along their journey. Oh, thank you so much for the chance to share their stories. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening, and you can learn more about Link at its website, libertyinnorthkorea.org. We'll also be posting links to the videos Paul and Hannah mentioned in our description, and also on our episode notes on Instagram, at Divided Families Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Thanks so much to Flannel Albert, as always, for the music, and see you next time.